What would your first thought be if every week when you showed up for church, Sunday or Wednesday, that outside of our building and lining the entrance were people who were begging for help? And I don't mean simply will work for food, but people who were blind, people who couldn't walk, people who had disabilities and who were relying on someone else to meet their need. And what would your reaction be is if you pulled up for the first time here and the the church just drove past them, came in, worshiped God and left and walked right past them again, in and out and in and out. They just walked by like they didn't even exist. What would your first reaction be? Wait, did, did you know what's happening outside? Does the church see the need? Does the church care about the need? Does anyone care about what's happening? I hope that would be your reaction. And I hope that would never be true about our church. But what you're going to find today in John chapter 9 is a very similar instance. So grab your Bible and open to the Gospel of John. It's in the New Testament. One of the four books that talks about the story of Jesus's life. And if you're new, we started walking through the gospel of John in January, and we're going to keep going all the way till Easter. And today you're going to meet a man who was born blind and lived all of his life up until this point outside of the temple. That's where he spent his days. And the temple was where people went to worship. That's where people went to church, and most of the people just walked right by him like he didn't even exist. And if you were born blind in the first century, then you were indeed a beggar. You could not provide for yourself. You were completely reliant on someone else to help you. Not only that, but you would have been an outcast. See, people would have thought that you were some sort of a sinner, there was some sort of shame that caused your malady. Well, what you're going to find out here is that Jesus and his disciples, they're heading to the temple, but they're actually going to stop and have an interaction with this man, and the disciples are going to ask Jesus a really interesting question, John chapter 9, verse 1. As he was passing by, that's Jesus, He saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, here's the question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, this man's blind. He's not deaf. He understands the question and probably hears it all the time, and it adds to the shame that he feels. Who's wicked, him or his parents? Look at Jesus' response. Neither this man nor his parents. Jesus says, hold on, boys, slow down just a minute. This isn't a sin issue. He's suffering. It's a tragedy. But there's no particular sin that you can point to that caused this. He's, he's suffering. Okay, we still want to know why. Why? Why is this happening? Why is he suffering? Why is he struggling? Why does this exist? And quite often when we encounter suffering or disability or struggle or heartache, we do ask the question, why? Why is there suffering? Why is there heartache? Why do people have issues like this? Did you know why? Is the most common question asked 
when some form of some form of suffering occurs. Psychologists tell us that we ask why because we encounter circumstances that exceed our human strength and wisdom. So why? Can't figure it out. See, why isn't just asking for information. No, no, no. Why is your response to try to make sense of it all? Why is this happening? And how do I endure? And how do I have faith? Why? God, you claim to be good, but there are times in life, I don't know about you, but it seems that, that what I see doesn't line up with what I believe. You ever feel that way? And so we ask, why? And that question of why has led people to several incorrect conclusions about God. And we talked about what I'm going to share with you next at length in a series we did on Romans a year ago. And so if this question is something in your heart, go back on our website and find where we talked about this. But let me repeat a couple of things that we shared a year ago about why. Number one, people say, well, God is powerful, you know, but he doesn't care. We have overemphasized the love of God. He created the world and then he just booted us out. He's no more than just an absentee father. We struggle with why is there suffering? And so we've said, well, he's powerful, but he doesn't care. We've also said, well, he's caring. Okay, I'll give you that. He's caring, but he's just not strong. An imperfect world is attributable to an imperfect God. He's high and lifted up, but he's limited. His arms are just too short. His desire for the world doesn't match his strength. He's just, he's, he's weak. And if you remember, I told you about Rabbi Harold Kushner, who really helped advance the idea, hey, why do bad things happen to good people? You ever wondered that? Why do bad things happen to good people? And it started when he took his three-year-old son to the doctor, and the doctor gave him bad news. He said, hey, your son will never be more than about this tall. He's going to age really quickly, and he's going to become old well before his time. And the son ended up passing away at eight years old. And here's what the rabbi said. He said, is this, is this what I get for serving God? This is what I get. In his pain, he renovated his theology and he said, you know what? I don't know that I can trust the God who's there, who's able to help, who's strong enough to help, but chooses not to help. I've also wondered why God chooses to heal some and not others. And suffering causes a lot of questions and there's not always a connection between what we see and what we know to be true but God's big enough for all of our doubts and questions and concerns but quite often what I want you to know the biggest battles that you're going to face will not stand in front of you but will rage inside of you can I trust this and so so we ask why because we don't know what I've learned in my 44 years on this earth and 23 years following Jesus is that God does indeed call us to live by faith and not by sight, that we will not fully see clearly in this world until we fully see Jesus. And this, this blind man in this story, Jesus said, hey, this is not a sin issue. It's not something he did. So sometimes, church, we just need to allow broken people to be broken without assuming they're bad because we live in a fallen world. And so instead of asking God why, we should ask God how. 
how do I glorify? If this is your plan, how do I glorify you? Because that's what Jesus is pointing to here. Look back at verse three. Look at what he says. Neither this man who sinned, that's the question, neither this man or his parents, this came, listen, you want to know why? Leading to how? This came about so that God's works might be displayed in him. The reason why he's had this is so that the power of God can show up in his life at this moment right now. How is a much better question. How? So we ask the question, how then do I glorify God? God, if this is what you've chosen, if this is what you've allowed, if this is what you're calling me to, how do I glorify you? And not only in my life, but God, how do I help others glorify God who are also suffering? Don't let pain terminate on you. Pain should produce praise. I press into God. I don't reject God. The brightest lights often shine in the darkest moments. And your life, your life can give a powerful testimony to your brothers and sisters who are watching you, who are Christians. Not only that, it's a powerful witness to non-Christians who desperately want a real-life, real-time example of a faith that doesn't fade, a faith that sticks, a faith that endures. And we know the first chapter of this blind man's life. He's a blind beggar. And everybody wondered, what sin is in his life? What shame is he hiding He's at a rough point, but a new chapter is about to be written in his life. Look at verse 6. And after he said these things, he spit on the ground, made some mud from saliva, and spread the mud on his eyes. Verse 7, go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sin. And so he left. He washed, and he came back. Jesus spitting is not something I expected to encounter in this healing. Did you? But Jesus does that, and our boy goes, and he comes back from the pool of Siloam, healed, and what you're going to encounter next is how his friends and neighbors in the town react to what just happened. So you're going to see how this thing begins to trend on Nolansville 411. How are people going to respond in the town? Look back at verse 8. Well, his neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit begging? Some said, no, 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 he's the one. Others said, no, but he looks like him. It's a little stunt double thing. Not sure what happened at Siloam, but it's not the same guy. But he kept saying, no, I am the one. And so they asked him, then how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and told me, go to Siloam and wash. So when I went and washed, I received my sight. Where is he now? They asked. I don't know. I can't give you an eyewitness things to what happened before I could see. I was blind. I don't know where he is. Where did Jesus go? I'm not sure, but here's what I do know. I was blind, and now I see. There are more accounts of Jesus's healing of blindness than any other miracle in the New Testament. See, there was a prophecy in Isaiah they say when the king comes, when the Messiah comes, when God steps in, he's going to set the captives free, but he's going to open the eyes of the blind. And so Jesus said, I'm going to do that. 
And what you're going to see is it's far more than physical sight. It's a spiritual sight. But there are no accounts of blind people in the Old Testament being healed. And so when Jesus steps on the scene, obviously knows this prophecy, wrote this prophecy, healing blindness was one of the most common miracles that he did. And then the man received his sight. Let me ask you a question. We're going to do a little exercise here for a moment. Let me ask you a question. The man who was healed, the man more blind, was he healed before or after his act of obedience? And the obedience was go and wash. Did he receive his sight before or after his act of obedience? Before or after? Look at, look at your neighbor. Say, before or after? This is an easy question. Before or after he obeyed, was he healed? After. Do you know what that says? For those of you who are following Jesus, there are blessings that only follow obedience. Some of us foolishly think, why wouldn't God give me his best even though I'm not really following him? Why would we expect God's best when we don't choose to obey him? You know, well, God's a loving God, and he's a gracious God, and he's a merciful God, and so I can really do whatever I want and get all of God's best. That's not biblical or true. This isn't give a dollar, God gives you $10. Not at all what I'm saying. But there are blessings that always follow obedience. One of the reasons we're so passionate about people taking their next step of baptism. It's not because it's a public declaration that Jesus has saved you. It's your first act of obedience. It's not just declaring, I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus said, believe and be baptized. So it's your first step of obedience. And so, man, there's a, there's a power, there's a blessing from God when we obey him and we want you to walk in. Blessings follow obedience. So let me ask you, where is it in your life that you're expecting God's best, but you're unwilling to do what he asks you to do. It's hard to reconcile that. And think about what the blind guy was asked. Jesus said, hey, you got to give up your spot right here. He'd probably already carved out his little begging spot. You know what I mean? If I get up and leave, somebody's going to take my spot. You sure you want me to leave my spot? Because I need my spot. Okay, now you got to go to the pool. Now I got to find the pool. I'm blind. I got to find the pool. Not only that, I got to walk around with spit mud on my face. You know how embarrassing that would be to walk around with spit mud on your face? He may not have even known it was spit mud. He doesn't know. Go get in the water. Okay, I got to find, find the water. Now I got to wash with water. It's a very inconvenient process that Jesus asked of this man. Nothing easy about what the blind guy was asked to do. Probably had no idea why any of it made sense, but he obeyed. When God leads you in a direction, listen to me. You trust God even when it doesn't make sense and you keep walking if God calls you to do it. Because we have faith before we receive our sight. We walk in faith until we see and quite often God calls us to walk in faith and we never fully see until eternity. This was a pretty special day. I would imagine when he came back healed, he was expecting a party. Let's celebrate our boy. Let's celebrate my man receiving his sight. Well, that's not exactly what happened. Look at verse 13. 
Because what's going to happen is the religious guys are going to show up. And the religious guys always ruin a party. Look at verse 13. They brought the man who used to be born blind to the Pharisees. And here's why things go south. Verse 14. The day that Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes was a what? A Sabbath. And for those of you who are new to church, a Sabbath is a day that God set aside as holy. Six days he created, and the seventh day he put as a Sabbath to rest. And so he called his people, hey, work for six days, rest for one. It was a very holy day. God had laws that governed the Sabbath. The problem was the religious guys made rules that they thought were equal to God's laws. And they had a very well-defined set of rules about what you can do and what you can't do on the Sabbath. In fact, many of those rules are still in place today. Things as silly as on the Sabbath, go check it out, a Jewish person cannot carry keys or use scissors. It's work. You know, they can't travel more than a mile on the Sabbath unless, unless you're over water because on water, it's harder to exactly measure distance. And so one of my Jewish friends, Stuart, you remember Stuart, he told me the story of a Jewish guy he knew who broke the code and he took a big water bottle, put it under his seat in the car. He's like, I'll drive whatever I want because I'm over water. True story. <laughs> Imagine God's up in heaven going, man, these guys are sharp. Angels, come here, come here. We've got to do better because they're, you know, cheat code. It's like when you used to play Contra. You remember that up, down, up, down, left, right, left, right, A, B, A, B, and you get two extra lives? That's what's happening. If you know what Contra is, ask your parents. It was a good game in the 80s. Anyway, stop distracting me. Today, a Jewish person is not permitted um, to engage electricity on the Sabbath. So if you go to Jerusalem, there are what's called Shabbat elevators. And these are elevators that automatically open and close the doors and then stop on every level because at some point a religious guy said, hey, if you engage electricity, you're working and you're breaking our rules on the Sabbath. So you can get on the elevator, it will stop at every floor and you don't have to touch a button, therefore you don't sin because you didn't engage electricity. But if it's a high rise, pack a lunch because you're going all the way up and stopping at every floor. And so what they've done is they've installed Gentile elevators where you can go over and press buttons. And if you go to Jerusalem now, you'll watch Jews get on with the Gentiles because, hey, you press seven. You can sin, but I can't, but press seven for me. <laughs> Many believe you can't take a bath on the Sabbath because the steam might clean the floor. You can't eat eggs that were laid by hens on a Sabbath because the hens were working. A uh, 7th century law that's on the books says you can't smile on the Sabbath. I feel like a lot of Christians today have read that law. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> There's a, another set of rules from a Christian college from just about 20 years ago that says on the Sabbath, listen, students may only listen to three types of music, classical, semi-classical, and serious religious music. That's it, serious, yeah, serious religious music. It's rules, 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 rules. Jesus, by healing this man, didn't break any of God's laws. But he did break their rules because their rules are not equal to God's laws. And he's God in the flesh. He's like, I know what's right and I know what's wrong. And the religious guys take an issue with what Jesus does and they're gonna come in hot. But Jesus doesn't back down. 
I know Jesus is gracious and kind and merciful, but he also ruffled feathers and turned over tables and was quite offensive to the religious guys because he says, listen, what you don't understand is I'm Lord of the Sabbath. I'm the God who invented the Sabbath. And I don't know. I don't know. I'm going to walk away from the Bible. I don't know. But I think that Jesus healed on the Sabbath right next to the temple on purpose. You know, there's seven different times in the New Testament where he intentionally chooses to heal on the Sabbath. Don't heal on the Sabbath. Oh, yeah, watch this. Don't work on the Sabbath. Oh, yeah, I'll make a mud pie. Don't walk on the Sabbath. I'll send him to the pool of Siloam because I'm the God who invented this and I'm here to heal people and give mission and mercy to others. I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Well, look at the religious guys in... uh, Verse 15. Well, then the Pharisees asked him how he received his sight. He put mud on my eyes. He told them, I washed and I can see. He simply said exactly what happened in his life. The formerly blind guy was asked what happened, and he told him, I was blind, now I see. Being used by God, listen to me, Being used by God is quite often as simple as just telling others what Jesus has done for you recently. Here's what God's doing. Start telling your story. When we talk about gospel conversations here, we have equipping, we have classes, we have tools, but don't use a lack of tools as an excuse to being used by God. Oh, you know, I want to, but I don't know how to. You can start telling others what Jesus has done in your life this week. That's what he did here. Verse 16. Well, some of the Pharisees said, no, 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 no. This man is not from God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath. He doesn't keep our rules, basically. But others were saying, well, how can a sinful man perform such signs? And there was a division among them. And so they're debating. He's from God. He's not from God. I'm not really sure. There's a, uh, there's a problem here. And they, they don't like it. And what you're reading here is a hardness of heart developing in the Pharisees. They already don't like Jesus, and there's a continued hardening of their heart. And listen to me, this could be, for some of you, the most important thing that you hear today. You're reading, look right here, about the hardening of their hearts. Jesus time and time again proved that he was God. I'm God, follow me. There wasn't a lack of evidence for the Pharisees to not believe in Jesus. It wasn't a lack of evidence. It was an unwillingness to surrender and follow Jesus. It wasn't a lack of evidence. It was an unwillingness on their part to say yes to him and no to what they wanted. And quite often today, I encounter people who don't really lack evidence for the goodness of God. You cannot take an honest intellectual look at the Bible, the claims of Christ, the historicity of Christianity, and walk away with anything other than faith in Christ. In fact, one of the most well-known skeptics, Lee Strobel, set out to disprove Christianity and now is a best-selling author for the claims of Christ. You can't. So for some, it's not a lack of evidence. 
It's an unwillingness to surrender and believe. Your way, not mine. Your God, I'm not. I'll follow you, not set my own path. And some of you have felt this pull of God on your life for some time. I'm just praying that you don't end up with an unwillingness to believe in a hardening of your heart. Because God is inviting you to follow him. And there is life and freedom. And it is a step of faith, but it is a plunge into the best of God. So that's what's happening here with the religious guys. And then look at verse 17. Well, again, they ask the blind man, because once was not enough. This is going to be a reoccurring theme. What do you say about him since he opened your eyes? Well, the blind guy goes, all I know is he's a prophet, he said. So they don't like the answer, but they ask him about Jesus. And he says, the best he can do at this moment. Man, he's a holy man. He gives him honor. He is a prophet. That's the best he knows to say at this moment. And then look at verse 18. Well, the Jews didn't believe this about him, that he was blind and received sight. They, again, they something is, you know, sour in this moment. There's no way this is true. Until they summoned his parents of the one who had received sight. So they're going to go get the parents, and they're going to ask the parents to speak up here. Verse 19. Then they asked them, is this your son, the one you say was born blind? How does he now see? So they want testimony that the guy born blind indeed was a blind man from birth. And now look at what the parents say, verse 20. Well, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, his parents answered, but we don't know how he now sees and we don't know who opened his eyes. So don't ask me how or who, I don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. Why would the parents say that? Verse 22, his parents said these things because they were afraid of the Jews since the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him as Messiah, he would be banned from the synagogue. This is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So the parents come to the courtroom and they're there with their legal pads and all of their accusations and they ask the parents and the parents look at each other like, one, two, three, not it. Not speaking up. But imagine... The moment our son's been healed, this is amazing. The religious guys don't really like us, and they could kick us out of the synagogue, which your life and your faith was so intertwined, you couldn't separate them or kick them out. Not awesome. And so, fear in that moment stood in the doorway of God even using them in greater ways. And so, what I love is, man, the blind guy, formerly blind guy, he's going to speak up and he's he's going to have a little attitude. Look at verse twenty-four. So a second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind, and they told him, look at what they asked him. Give glory to God. We know this man's a sinner. They're basically saying, testify that Jesus is a sinner and isn't who he claims to be. Verse 25, he answered, well, whether or not he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, and now I see. And they asked him, what did he do to your eyes? And how did he open your eyes? Verse 27. This is hilarious. Look at verse 27. I already told you, he said, and you didn't listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You don't want to become one of his disciples, do you? <laughs> that's funny. If you don't think that's funny, you're sleeping in church. That's hilarious. 
Guys, salty. You've already asked me. I've already told you. You're going to ask me again. Why do you keep inquiring him? You won't follow him with me? Because we can follow him together. It's incredible. Didn't you write this down earlier? I already told you what happened. I'm a beggar, and he gave me my sight. That's what I love about this man. Listen, everything about this man had to be given to him at some point in his life. I need food. Here's food. I need water. Here's water. I need money. Here's money. I need a place to live. I'll give you a place to live. He was incapable of providing for himself. Others had to provide for him. Enter Jesus. Jesus didn't ask him for one thing. Jesus didn't ask him to provide one thing. Jesus simply provided for him and said, I'll give you everything you need. Here's the problem. Most of us, quite often, as we said a few minutes ago, are unwilling to surrender, are unwilling to step in because we don't want to see ourselves in the same situation as this beggar. In complete and total need of God providing for us what we need. Jesus shows up. No, 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 let, let me show you how moral I've been. Let me show you what I have done. No, 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 Jesus, let me show you I've gone to church. I've given money. Jesus, I, Jesus, I. Look, look, look at me. Jesus, what I've done. And the Bible says, man, our righteousness, our good works are like filthy rags. So we have to envision ourselves like the beggar in complete and total need of someone else providing for us. That's a hard place to get to but it's the sweetest of all places because it's in that moment Jesus says, I will provide for you. I will meet you right here. You have nothing to give. I'll give you everything. And the religious guys missed it. And they're going to bring the guy back in. Jesus is a sinner. Tell us what you think. He's like, listen, I was blind and now I see. Every day you walked by me and you never helped me. You did nothing for me. You had no compassion for me. You never saw me. In fact, I bet you don't even know my name. I don't exist to you. But Jesus shows up and Jesus saw me and Jesus helped me and Jesus healed me. And then in verse 28, the religious guys aren't going to like his response. So the religious guys are going to say, no, 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 you don't understand how biblical we are and how scriptural we are. They're going to say, listen, we follow Moses and we do what Moses says. They're, they're going back to the original law. We're biblical because we follow Moses. Listen, man, do you know who Moses pointed to? You know who Moses was setting the stage for? Jesus. They missed it. These guys, biblical we know the truth. And the, the blind guy who was healed is about to take him to school. Look at verse 30. 
Huh, this is an amazing thing, the man told them. You don't know where he's from, talking about Jesus, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he listens to him. Throughout history, no one has ever heard of someone opening the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he wouldn't be able to do anything. Boy, he just starts preaching. And then you know what the religious guy's response is? Get out. They kick him out. They send him on his way, which, whether he realized it or not, was perhaps a gift on that day to be sent away from the smug religious guys back to where Jesus was. And then Jesus is going to encounter him yet again, and not only does he get physical sight given to him, but he gets spiritual sight. He gets salvation, which is the deepest need. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had thrown the man out, and when he found him, he asked, listen to the question, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him, he asked. What Jesus answered you have seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. So he asks him, basically, do you, do you know who the Messiah is? The promised one? No, but if you tell me, I'd like to. Jesus says, it's me. Look at verse 38. I believe, Lord, he said, and he worshiped to him. Verse 39 through 41, these verses here, they make you think. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment in order that those who do not see will see and that those who do see will become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and they asked him, we aren't blind too, are we? If you were blind, Jesus told them, you wouldn't have sin." But now that you say we see, your sin remains. Sin and blindness are incurable apart from a miracle from God. And the blind guy was blind physically and he was blind spiritually. And Jesus opened his eyes and then asked him if his heart knew the way to the Messiah. He says, I don't, but I want to know. And Jesus says, it's me, follow me. And he worshiped him. And then he had the eyes of his heart opened. He became a follower of Jesus. And so the physical healing led to spiritual healing. And he says, I'm for you. But he has harsh words for the Pharisees because although they have physical sight, they're spiritually blind. And, and what they were saying to Jesus is, hey, the eyes of our heart, we see just fine. We don't need you. We don't need your grace. We don't need your forgiveness or your miracles because we've got it figured out. We've got our rules. We know the law. We're keeping it and we're doing just fine, Jesus. Thank you very much. We don't have a spiritual issue. We don't have spiritual blindness and Jesus had harsh words for him. He said, because you think you see, 
your sin remains on you. None of us have eyes to see in our heart apart from Jesus Christ. None of us have spiritual sight unless God steps in and says, hey, know me and follow me. And of late, God has been sending into our lives and into this church lots of people who want to know and follow Jesus and receive sight, receive life, not only in this life, but in eternity. And maybe that's you. I love encountering people every week who want to give their life to Jesus. And if that's you, can we, can we chat? That's really what the next step is. Like so many do every week, there's a card in the seat back in front of you. Man, grab that card, fill it out, and say, man, I want to know and follow Jesus. I will reach out to you. I will connect with you. You cannot take an honest look at Christianity and not arrive at the cross. A resurrected Savior. Any intellectual pursuit, any honest pursuit will lead you to the truth of Jesus Christ. And if you want to give your life to Jesus, then just fill out the card, turn it in. I would love to talk to you this week. But for others of you who are Christians, can I, can I invite you along on a journey with me? If you remember at the beginning of the sermon, I said, what would it be like if every Sunday when you drove in, that our church was lined with people who had significant needs? I think you would want us to be a church that did something about it. But when you leave the day, there are not going to be people lining the exit and the entrance who can't see or can't walk. But, but here's what I know. Our town is full of people. Middle Tennessee is full of people with deep spiritual need. And I'm praying to the Lord that we would be a group of people that he would break our hearts to not be a group of people that just walks right by we're going to worship we're going to church we're doing our lives we're doing our thing and we just walk by the lost and searching and hurting and broken I want us to be a group of people who, like Jesus and his disciples, bent down right there and met people right where they are. Will you come go with us? Lord, we ask that your power would rest upon this church, that we would be used by you to take the good news of Jesus to the lost and searching the hurting and the broken, and that we would indeed saturate Nolensville with the gospel, plant groups in every neighborhood and then extend our reach and plant churches in Murfreesboro and Smyrna and College Grove. May we be used mightily by you to bring more people into your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.